But first, we start with the spending scandal that is the talk of the town in the great city of Kamloops, where we're simulcast every day on Radio NL. Everybody in Kamloops talking about this one, the local government official who racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars in expenses on his government credit card. Well, let's talk with the reporter who broke this story, Jessica Wallace uh, from Kamloops this week. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Jessica, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me this morning, Mike. Okay, congratulations on your work on this story. So tell me about this this official, Suk Gill, right? He is the former chief administrative officer in the Thompson-Nicola Regional District, correct? Yes. So this story kind of chronicles the spending on his taxpayer taxpayer-funded credit card, right. um, which included, you know, half a million dollars, more than 174000 spent on restaurants and coffee shops, and, you know, all funded by taxpayers. Unbelievable. How did you get into this story? Is this all through FOI documents? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, this story kind of didn't pass the smell test from day one. Um, basically, what happened was the former CAO um, left under murky circumstances, we started asking questions, and the story kind of changed multiple times. My editor, Chris Folds, kind of said, you know, um, follow the money. If, if there was something yeah. that happened that was, you know, um, not what, to what they were saying, it would all be public information. Um, then was kind of reading a TNRD agenda one day and found a, um, you know, a line item in a massive budget update that was talking about $200,000 in salary continuance costs. Asked some questions about that, found out it was part of, you know, a severance to Gill, and then soon after chips started to fall, they released through our FOI request the settlement. Um, you know, people started coming forward. We filed dozens more information requests, and then as part of that, this spending was uncovered. Well, I love it. Uh, follow the money. That's uh, that's a great way to approach a story like this. So let's talk a little bit about some of the spending that you uncovered here, Jessica. So that's a lot of money, half a million dollars. What are some of the more controversial items that you uncovered there in the spending? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of details. It's five, word, five years worth of spending, and I would encourage people to take a look. There's a spreadsheet that we created that kind of details every one of those, and people can see kind of who's attached to those including people from all over British Columbia. Um, so it might interest your audience. But um, one example of spending that kind of piqued our interest, and this was the most expensive restaurant bill um, over the five years, was an $8,000 expense at the Barefoot Bistro in Whistler. Some of your audience might know it. And it occurred during the 2018 UBCM convention. And the TNRD is kind of known for swapping or, you know, swapping its UBCM gala attendance for hosting its own event where they see it as kind of a networking kind of function. And um, this was that example in 2018. And I don't know if people have been there, but, you know, this is a restaurant that's trendy, high-end. If anyone who's ever been there, I guess they're known for kind of serving this high-end luxury Japanese beef called Wagyu beef. And it's also known for this vodka ice room. And if you see social media posts of the restaurant, sometimes you'll see people in there doing, you know, kinds of shots of vodka. So it kind of raises some questions. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say so. Speaking to Jessica Wallace from Kamloops this week on the, the spending scandal that has everybody talking in Kamloops, what about the, uh, the gold necklace? Was there, there was an expense for a gold necklace? Yes, yeah, so um, the regional district was apparently also um, known for kind of high-end gifts, including oh. um, about a $1,000 gold diamond necklace to an outgoing TNRD director. 
So this director, you know, um, was retiring and this had happened, you know, she had been involved for quite a while, but um, again, because this falls within the TNRD's policy of, you know, they give a certain amount for a certain amount of tenure, but people are raising questions about whether that policy is good and whether there should be changes to that policy. Right. right. What about the uh, all the money spent at coffee shops and restaurants? It's one hundred and seventy-four thousand uh, dollars. It sounds like was was this guy like dining out on the taxpayer's dime like every other day or something, or charging his coffee every day, or is that what it looks like to you? Or what stood out to us absolutely was the frequency of the restaurant and coffee yeah. shop transactions and also those high dollar figures attached uh, that reference that barefoot bistro transaction. So we actually looked at the number of food-related transactions on these expenses of the CAO compared to other regional districts in the province, and we found that gills were comparatively high um, and also that the um, nature of the transactions were high-end. You know, the the reference of the Barefoot Bistro is just one, but, you know, the average person might go to a nice restaurant on a special occasion, say Valentine's Day or that kind of thing. But, you know, it appears that nice places in our community and elsewhere where we're kind of the norm. And meanwhile, only one transaction in five years occurred at McDonald's. Okay. Okay. You mentioned that the official here uh, in question, Suk Gill, no longer works for the regional district there. Did he resign last year? Is that what happened? or? So the circumstances remain murky. As I said, the story had kind of changed multiple times, and we continue to ask questions about that and work on stories related to that. And we're hoping that more is to come on that angle. Um, However, the official word from the regional district is that was that he retired. And then through FOI requests, we were able to get uh, a legal agreement that specifically referenced a requirement legally to call his um, departure um, a retirement. Retirement. Okay. Where does this go from here now, Jessica? Is there any kind of official investigation or review underway about this? So I've reached out to the RCMP to, to, to ask if there's any kind of investigation. But from what I understand, this was all within policy. And the TNRD maintains that they have changed their policies and updated those policies. And that, um, you know, and directors have said that they understand that this kind of spending is unlikely to occur in the future. However, I mean, taxpayers still have questions. There are questions about why Gil left that remain um, unanswered, at least officially. We continue to work on this story and are encouraging anybody with information to come to me and I protect my sources. Awesome job on this, Jessica. Congratulations on the great work you've done here and thanks for coming on today. Thank you very much for highlighting the work of our paper. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it a lot. Jessica Wallace there, a reporter with Kamloops this week. Uh, Wow, what a local bombshell there on this spending scandal there. Local official Suk Gill, who's now retired, as you heard her say there, more than $500,000 racked up on, on his expense account. Let's check in now with Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who's uh, looking for a further investigation on this uh, situation. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having us. Okay, what do you think of this? Well, it's, as you said, just a bombshell of a story. Yeah. And kudos to the reporter, um, yeah. Wallace. She deserves a, at least a nomination for a journalism award. I uh, agree. Crazy amount of work. I really yeah. encourage all your listeners, go to that website and look at that table. There are hundreds and hundreds of entries, uh, all at taxpayers' dime, uh, from restaurants and, get this, a liquor store. Who uh-huh. goes on taxpayers' dime and buys gift cards at a local liquor store repeatedly? 
in order to give it as a quote-unquote a gift to somebody. It's just mind-boggling. And there's stuff in there that has no explanation whatsoever. There's even a, a jeweler's receipt for about 1100 bucks in Vancouver. No explanation. No. Not who it's for. Not what it's for. Nothing. Well, well, is that for the necklace? No, this is oh. for a different one. Oh, and not there's, something else. Oh, yeah, there's more okay. than one jeweler's receipt on there, and then there's just random things like you know, close to four hundred dollars spent at Canadian Tire for no reason. You don't yeah. see an ex- explanation, and so we need some answers here. And it's again highlighting our call for a permanent and tough municipal auditor general office we need a real one here in bc and it's up to the premier to decide whether or not he wants to mothball the tiny little toothless lapdog that we technically have right now in name only or if he actually wants to make it a big pack of dobermans we need (laughs) that big pack of dobermans because this isn't the only one this is something that ms wallace found out and through her hard work is now telling the rest of us about who knows how many other situations are like this throughout bc Okay, well, you heard her describe there that the official the official explanation from the Thompson-Nicola Regional District on this uh, is that this spending all fell within uh, local policy, spending policies, although it sounds like the policies are, are being changed. I, I wonder, I mean, this is just one municipality among hung- hundreds in British Columbia. Could this be more widespread than we think, this type of, uh, this type of spending? I fear so, yeah. because one would think, before you heard this story, one would think that it's common sense that you don't charge alcohol to taxpayers. Well, unless they're giving it as a champagne gi- room. Unless they're know? giving it as a gift, right? Like it sounds like they were, you know, giving people retirement gifts or thank you gifts or something. That, and not only that, Mike, uh, but whining and dining each other. There are oh, provincial yeah. politicians on some of these receipt tabs here. Scroll over to the right-hand side. There were people really uh, bellying up to the bar, and it was all on taxpayers' money, and although, it wasn't just local municipal municipal politicians. Right, although hospitality is kind of standard operating procedure for a lot of governments, you know, networking opportunities, but I guess the question is, does it get out of control and abused? Of course, right? and yeah. frankly, why do you need... If you're all elected representatives and or bureaucrats in the same regional district, you don't yeah. need to network with each other on taxpayers' well, money. You certainly don't need to spend it on alcohol. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the spending scandal. That's the talk of the town in Kamloops there. A local official is now retired. More than 500000 bucks racked up on his expense account. My guest is Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She's calling for more oversight on municipal spending. Let's go to your phone calls. Harry and Mission. Well, sir, first of all, municipal managers is a specialized job. They make more than the mayor. They're paid more than most lawyers. They're making six digits. There's no reason. Their whole job is to protect the municipality. There's no reason for them to leave this wide open. Do we need accountability? Nothing wrong with accountability. I used to work for the government. If If I went to McDonald's, I had to file paperwork, you know? Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Th- thank you for the call, Chris. I mean, we have a municipal, don't we have a municipal auditor now, or what's the status of that? We technically have one, but it's a name yeah. only. It's basically like some phantom website floating there. It does nothing. So we really need to urge the premier to get on this. Well, what do they do? I mean, if it's there, if it's actually nothing. there, like is somebody getting paid to be the auditor over there? <laughs> Maybe technically on a stipend, but they had already announced that they were going to mothball it. So it's just hanging okay. there as some dead website. Like the, okay. they, they need to get on this. You know, this is not partisan. Every single political party should want accountability and transparency here. I agree with you. Let's go to Phil in North Van. Hey, Phil. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. First of all, 
uh, people should uh, be celebrating the significance of uh, a young reporter uh, being recognized for doing their job and and allowing this to be made public. Because, Absolutely. Because, frankly, we have a person who clearly has done an amazing thing by revealing all this, yeah. and uh, uh, it doesn't get swept under the rug, and uh, it sounds like they're not bought and paid for by the mainstream media. Having said that, the uh, local politicians, I live in Richmond, and it is unbelievable what the city spends money on, and there's zero accountability. There's just no accountability. The, 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 for example, in, in, in Richmond, the, the mayor has been mayor forever. He is such a machine that nobody can get in and put chinks in the armor. You know, we get a, we get a, a, a crosswalk, a safety crosswalk in a park that's been there from okay. the 50s. Okay. Okay, thank, thank you, Phil. I, I agree with what you said about the reporter there in Kamloops. Um, it shows you the value of local journalism, because if the local newspaper had not revealed this, probably no one would ever know. Mike and Vernon. Hey, Mike. Mike. You know, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Hello, go ahead. There? Yeah, go ahead. Hey, a um, couple of things. I remember uh, years ago, a friend of mine who worked in the municipality of Surrey telling me that he said, you know, we talk about, or about uh, federal and provincial spending, but he says we're extremely out of control and where the taxpayers get absolutely hammered is municipally. Yeah. And, and he's right. But, you know, um, another really good point that was brought up was the uh, accountability through that auditor. Now, I remember the Liberals bringing that in yes. and the screaming and yelling that came from municipalities. And what's the, one of the, that was one of the very first things that the Liberal Party did, or the NDP did when they got elected, was to cancel that. And, and it had already... Um, had shown a number of problems in various municipalities, and and it gave a grading, and some of them are pretty poor. And I don't know why it was ever canceled. Thank you, Mike. And and Chris, that's the office you're calling for to be toughened up. Yeah, and the the caller put the nail on the head right there. Just hit it. Uh, If the UBCM is crying blue murder and saying we shouldn't have this oversight and accountability, that's a really good reason to put that in there. Okay, let's go to Rob in North Van. Hey, Rob. Hi there, Mike. Hi, you got thirty. You call. got thirty. Thirty seconds. Go ahead. I'm just wondering if there are any plans for a criminal investigation and/or possible restitution because this amounts to theft of public funds. The uh, the reporter Jessica Wallace told me she had spoke to the RCMP there in Kamloops. It does not sound like there is is a formal criminal investigation, but I would certainly agree with Chris Sims that we need tougher oversight on this kind of spending. Chris, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go with the great fracking debate in British Columbia. Hydraulic fracturing, also known as fracking, very controversial. Of course, it's the method to extract natural gas from the ground. A big industry in British Columbia set to expand with the new LNG Canada plant coming online. Uh, but a new campaign underway now to ban fracking in the province. It's called Planet on Fire and Fracking in BC. It's a campaign by the Wilderness Committee. Let's discuss now. We got both sides of it for you. Peter McCartney on the line. He's a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Peter, thanks for doing us. Hey, you bet. Thanks for having me. Okay. Also on the line is Stuart Muir, Executive Director of Resource Works. He supports fracking in the LNG industry. Hey, Stuart. Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on, guys. Peter, let me go to you first. Tell me about this campaign. Yeah, so uh, it's a campaign we've been working on for a while, uh, but we're going hard at it this year uh, because of new information that shows, you know, the 
oil and gas industry is the single largest uh, polluter, more than more so than all other industry combined in British Columbia. And it's also the one that's increasing. Uh, emissions have gone up 8% from that industry since 2007, uh, while declining by 4% across the board uh, in the other industries. So there's two sections, two things that we're asking for. Um, the first one is an immediate end to fossil fuel subsidies. You know, these, these fracking companies are surviving off of massive public handouts from the provincial government. Um, we found that 14 out of 15 of the top fracking companies in BC ended up uh, receiving more in fracking drilling credits uh, then they actually paid in taxes and royalties to the provincial government, which, you know, I'd, it's just unacceptable that we're subsidizing the most polluting industry in British Columbia. So what, would, what would happen if you canceled those subsidies? Would they just pack up and leave? Uh, you know, I think drilling would stop. Um, you know, the, the existing gas that is already being produced would, of course, keep going. But, yeah, if you, if you cancel these subsidies, the, the idea is that, um, you know, we're not subsidizing pollution into creation. We can, uh, we can sort of use some of the resource revenues uh, that the province is bringing in. How many, how, many how many people would lose their jobs? So there's, there's about 8,000 people who work in fracking oh. in BC. Um, there's... Certainly, you know, that's that's a lot of people and we need to figure out what to do with them. But it's not insurmountable. <laughs> we can we can figure that out. You know, okay. early retirement and, uh, you know, retraining for folks that are younger in the industry can easily transition this industry over the next several decades. Okay, let me go to Stuart Muir. Stuart, your thoughts. Yeah, you, you know, I think in terms of the, the government perspective, you look at the revenues that go to the B.C. government, it, it's been quite... Uh, a benefit to BC to have a healthy industry. And although uh, Pete incorrectly uses the term subsidies, we're, we're talking about a royalty program that actually incentivizes investments and the deep well credits that uh, are being talked about, which actually are going to be reviewed. You know, the BC government in the last uh, election committed to a review of royalties. So that's happening. But you look at deep well credits, they've, for a, quite a small investment, what Pete calls a subsidy, but as I say, it's an incentive. They, they created $90 billion worth of gas investment in D.C., and that would have gone to Alberta or someone else, somewhere else. Uh, $24 billion in government revenues from that. I would say it's closer to 10,000 jobs, not 8,000. And that, those are jobs, not just any jobs. They've got the highest average wage in any industry. And it's okay, also the most innovative and high-tech industry. So do you want to keep it or lose it? And that's really what Pete is, I think, asking. Okay, let's talk about that high-tech industry. And, and Peter, you, you tell me if, you know, let's talk about what fracking is. Basically, you drill down into the ground, you, you put down high-pressure water mixture down there to crack the shale rock, and it, re it releases the natural, natural gas, right? I mean, that's just kind of a Coles Notes version of it. But what, what is wrong with that? What is the environmental impact of that? I mean, the environmental impact on the landscape is pretty massive. Uh, you know, the, the fracking industry and all of the access roads, you know, well pads, everything they have actually, um, I think, four or five times the size of Alberta's tar sand mines. Uh, so the landscape impacts are huge. They use a massive amount of water, half a million water trucks a year. But really, for me, the biggest impact is on the climate. You know, these, these fracking wells and all the infrastructure, the valves, um, you know, they're not perfect, and they leak methane gas into the atmosphere, which is a huge issue because methane gas is 86 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a global warming uh, gas over its right. lifetime. And so, you know, every time we look and try and study the amount of methane that's coming from northeast BC, it ends up being higher than industry and government previously reported. Stuart, um, Stuart what do you... For about a quarter of global warming, and, and we, need mm. to, uh, we need to tackle it. Stuart, what do you say to that? 
Yeah, the the direction of government right now and and industry together is to green up that natural gas because it is the lowest profile GHGs of any fossil fuel. And that's why companies, especially on the other side of the Pacific, are lining up for Canadian gas because it's not just Canada that has climate concerns. It's every country in the world. And so Korea, Taiwan, India, why do they want gas from Canada? They want gas from Canada because they can lower their GHGs and they have fast growing economies. They desperately need it. But, you know, on the environmental side, who isn't concerned with the environment uh, the Supreme Court of B.C., they, they were asked a few years ago to rule on, on fracking. And here's what the judge justice came out with, um, that water protection was transparent. It was in the hands of science-based regulations. A creditable job had, had been done in protecting the environment. Then only, here's a stat for you, and I'll, and I'll stop after that, Mike. In B.C., just 0.006% of water permits were for fracking. That's it. Okay. Any proportion. Okay. Speaking of Peter McCartney and Stuart Muir about fracking in British Columbia, the Wilderness Committee has a new ban fracking campaign. So, Stuart, or, or uh, Peter, let me ask you about the LNG Canada project, which has been called the biggest private sector investment in, in the history of Canada, a $40 billion project. Where? What is the status of that project? And are you saying, like, if you had your way and you banned fracking, that project would be dead, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it may be the largest investment, but it's also the largest polluter. And the truth is, you know, LNG Canada at full build-out will create more carbon pollution than every passenger vehicle in British Columbia. And so we're going to have to work a lot harder, spend a lot more money, and likely not even going to be able to meet the province's climate goals um, because but, of this one project being brought online. And but that's isn't unacceptable it, to me. But isn't it cleaner than the coal they would otherwise be burning in China? We sell it to them? It's not. You know, it's, I, I want to debunk this talking point that started in Christy Clark's, uh, you know, former Premier Christy Clark's office. It's a PR bet. Well, the, the NDP it, says the same thing. It's nothing to do with science. The NDP says the same thing. Anyway. The gas that's being exported to these countries is not going to replace coal. Um, it's actually competing with renewables for new electricity generation. So if anything, it's uh, potentially pricing out wind and solar. Um, you know, it could just as easily be going to Japan to replace nuclear. But regardless of these, you know, creative carbon accounting that industry and government want to do here, the UN says that we have to reduce uh, gas production globally by 3% a year for the next 10 years in order to maintain a safe climate. So okay. it, do it doesn't matter where you're... Where you're sending it, we need to be having less gas, not more. Stuart, Stuart Muir. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think if you look at our neighbors to the south, they've gone into natural gas in a big way. All of the greenhouse gas improvements in the U.S., which are considerable, are because of natural gas. And that natural gas is almost entirely fracked. So it, it's, a, it's a myth that uh, gas is not part of a cleaner energy pathway. You know, is it the perfect solution? Is it the unobtainium uh, that would solve all of humanity's problems on energy without any side side effects? No, we have to, I suppose, keep looking for that. But but uh, for now, we have something that is reliable, affordable, environmentally sound. It allows others to achieve progress, and it creates benefits. You know, in the last uh, three years, uh, our health budget in BC went up by three billion dollars a year. That's that's uh, money that has to be found somewhere. I mean, do you want higher taxes, lower services, or do you want to have the government getting revenues from things that are realistic, like gas? Okay, There's guys, here's a billion what dollars worth of tax credits for fracking companies on the books right now.
Right, welcome back to our fracking debate, Stuart Muir and Peter McCartney. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Uh, we got lots of them. Max and Delta. Hey, Max. Hey, guys. How's it going today? Good. Good. Um, I, 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 I don't want to come across like an extremist on either side. Um, I've worked in the fracking industry, and I've seen firsthand uh, the chemicals that we pump down um, a well, anywhere from, say, one to 5,000 meters. And the stuff that comes back up is called process water. And it is, in, I mean, I'm no chemist, I'm no scientist, but it's single-handedly the most toxic substance that is in open air around humans. So let's get that out of the way. I want to qualify that. To the gentleman that, that's against natural gas, yeah. we have nearly 8 billion people on this planet, and we're already struggling to meet the power grid needs for for everyone um in my line of work which is irrelevant well it's not irrelevant but it's it's irrelevant to the conversation my line of work complaining without a solution is just bitching for the sake of bitching and you cannot sit there and say that wind and solar are the be-all end-all for eight billion people on this planet now just to qualify myself even more i now work in so-called hydroelectricity clean energy yeah. And believe me when I tell you, it is anything but. At the height of one project that I was on, we burned 100,000 liters of diesel per day just to keep the engines warming and the heaters going. So where is this clean energy going to come from? Okay, Max, very interesting call. Thank you for phoning in. Uh, Peter McCartney. Yeah, I mean, the good news about wind and solar is that they're cheaper than gas. Uh, the levelized cost of energy for wind and solar is about 42 43 bucks. Uh, and for a combined cycle gas turbine plant, it's 58 bucks a kilowatt hour. Um, so the truth is we can do this. We are doing this. Um, the renewables plus like backup battery storage where, uh, you know, we find ways to store energy and use it more efficiently with smart grids. That's the future uh, for all 8 billion people on the planet. And well, the truth can't... is natural gas is just going to become this really, really expensive backup fuel. But you can't turn off the switch on fossil fuels overnight. Of course right? you can't. You know, it's, yeah. And we're not asking for that. We're saying, hey, we need a plan. We have, we have a couple years to do this. Um, but tell, give us an end date. If you agree uh, I mean, that this industry isn't going to exist in 30 years, tell us how we're going to get there. Okay, well, you're saying you're, you're not calling for the, to switch off the, turn off the switch, but you're calling for a $40 billion project that's under construction right now to, to be shut down. But let me, let me go to Stuart Muir and get his thoughts real quickly. Stuart. Yeah, you know, there's a country, we hear a lot about Germany and their energy win. They put in like billions, hundreds of billions of investment into uh, green energy. And I'm a fan of all of that, by the way, all forms of energy. Sure. Um, what are they doing right now after years of wind turbines, which are working for them? Um, it's not enough. And so they're working with Russia to finish the uh, the new pipeline coming from Siberia to bring all that gas to Germany. They need natural gas. And it's it's just a myth that there is a sort of you know, off switch on fossil fuels. There isn't. We're going to need them really for the foreseeable future. Yes, we will, through technology, reduce their impacts because those impacts are real. Okay, Brian and Annesis Island, hi. Oh, hey, listen, everybody stole my thunder about that, but I'm going to just suggest to your environmentalist that he gets a, a book called False Alarm written by a Swedish guy. I forget his name. He's on YouTube. And he <laughs> does cost-benefit analysis programs right like for example when we had a pollution problem in california what did we do we invented catalytic converters 
problem okay. solved. Okay, the guy you're speaking... Yeah. You know, the- I mean, we live in Canada. We have to heat our homes and in the winter, and look at how that worked out for Texas. Okay, so, thank thank you for the call. The guy you're thinking of is Bjorn Lomborg, um, who's an interesting guy. Okay, Peter, your thoughts? Look, uh, I mean, I, I honestly have no time for people that say climate change is uh is not a giant crisis that is existential um and we we absolutely every world expert agrees you know the u.n committees have said we have to get this under control um and you know yeah we have to heat our homes but there's homes in alberta where it was like minus 40 degrees uh, that survive completely without fossil fuels. They're, you know, passive houses, um, you know, electric heat pumps. We can do this. And, and if we do this, it is going to save us, A, a ton of money, and B, a ton of lives. Okay, let's go to Kevin on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Kevin. Hey, thanks for taking my call. So, I, sure. you know, right on the get-go, I agree that uh, fracking is nasty. I, I personally think burning any fossil fuels is nasty. Um, where I'm going with this, though, is what your other callers have uh, said is, um, I don't think it's realistic. I'm looking at the clouds right now. I can't run my home off of solar um, year-round. I mean, we get a small amount of sun here in B.C. Um, worldwide, you, you can't run everything off of solar and wind. I've tried I've tried wiring my home. I've added solar. I can charge my phone. It, it's not realistic to simply cut fossil fuels, and I'd much rather what your other guests were saying Transit while you transition. Okay, what, Peter, what do you say to him? You know, you can look at the studies yourself. Stanford University has done an energy profile about how every single country on the planet could go 100% renewable. Um, the truth is we, we don't have much fossil fuels on our grid here in BC already, for better or worse. You know, we built hydro dams instead of coal plants. And yeah. so, you know, we, we're ahead in the race of, uh, you know, reducing carbon pollution, and uh, we just have to double down on that. Okay, Frank and Surrey on the line. Hey, Frank, we just got a minute left. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, hi there, uh, uh, Peter. Global warming, it was called, then it was climate change, then a climate emergency. Now the voice is even shriller. It's climate crisis. Now tell me, CO2 is an essential gas for life on Earth, but you continually refer to CO2 as a pollutant. You know, given that every person exhales a kilogram of CO2 every day, and given that WCB allows uh, workers to be exposed to 4,000 parts per million in an eight-hour day. So okay, Peter. CO2 is a pollutant. Peter, 30 seconds. You know, there's so much CO2 in the atmosphere right now that we are warming the planet. It's already warmed 1.1 degree, and we're on track for three unless we change things. And the B.C. NDP government, if they want to tackle climate change here in B.C., needs to pull the rug out from under this industry and stop giving them the okay. massive public giveaways that enable them to continue polluting. I want to thank both of you guys for being here once again. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, thank you. Stuart Muir from Resource Works, thanks for a really good discussion. We had lots of phone calls there. We couldn't get to all of them, so if you didn't get through, you know what to do. Phone the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail there. We may play it later. 604-331-BUZZ. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the anti-mask mayhem we're seeing around uh, BC these days. We've seen a lot of incidents here. People going into stores, refusing to put on a mask, and yeah, then the mayhem begins. We're seeing lots of viral videos here of confrontations in various stores. One of the wildest ones was the uh, Canadian Tire Store 
on Monday in Burnaby. RCMP responded to that one, and that's a viral video on that one as well. Guy goes into the store. Uh, the store saying that it appears to have been a situation where the man refused to put on a mask. There was a confrontation. I uh, see the guy getting wrestled to the ground. Uh, store staffers saying that he, possibly a guy had punched somebody. RCMP investigation going on. Pretty wild video on that one. You see the guy being uh, taken down by some of the store staff. And he's uh, yelling, don't touch me. My human rights trump your mask mandate. That's just one. I mean, there's a whole bunch of these ones. We saw the Canadian, that was at the Canadian Tire in Burnaby. We've seen several others in the last few days, including an incident at Vancouver's Carisdale Camera Store. Unidentified man confronting staff when he refused, when he was asked to put on a mask. Also a confrontation at a De Dutch pancake house. A group of people claim to have medical exemptions berating the young workers in that restaurant. Have a listen to this. This is at the the, 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 uh, the Dutch restaurant. What you're doing with that mask is like reusing toilet paper. You're sucking in the bacteria that you're supposed to exhale from your from your lungs. That's what that's, that's for. That's what it's a health hazard. Are you this here? this is all about suppression. Hey guys, it's not about a virus. You you realize that. It's not about that you should wear masks. Why don't you study it? Okay, so that's uh, people confronting a young employee there at the, the Dutch restaurant who looks like a teenager. I don't know. You know, we got to go in. These are young people just trying to do their jobs, and they've, they've got to deal with this stuff. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, a lawyer at Acumen Law. He's been following this one, too, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Nice to speak with you. Hey, what do you think when you see these uh, videos and these confrontations? Well, I mean, we've got a public health order. We all know, you know, the the vast majority of the population accepts and understands that masks have some effect here uh, to prevent the pandemic from spreading. Uh, it's uh, it's accepted. Uh, and then there's these people who, you know, some of them are, are just jerks. Some of them are following uh, uh, different news stories and persuading themselves of, of these things that, uh, that that masks are ineffective or what have you. Uh, and just don't want to follow the law. And some people just don't want to follow the law overall. Some people are conspiracy theorists. You know, it's a it's a pluralist society. There's all sorts of people uh, who construct their view of the world and their existence differently than, you know, maybe you and me. Yeah, some people, I think, absolutely, uh, actually want a confrontation, it, it seems like to me. Some people will go into a store, deliberately not have a mask on, and then start rolling video on, well, sure, on that, what happens. That, that, that police officer who ended up with a broken leg here in Vancouver, you know, that fella yeah. wasn't even in traffic court. He just went into the courthouse looking for a fight, Yeah. Um, you know, about masks. And there's a bunch of people who do this. And I don't know where they're getting their information, if they're getting it from Facebook or if they're just, you know, sharing these conspiracy theories or what have you. Some of the people, you know, you hear some of the uh, comments that they make and, and uh, they're likely uh, adherents of this free man of the land um, conspiracy theory. Uh, thing that's going on out there or QAnon or what have you. Yeah. Um, it's it's unfortunate, you know, that we have to deal with these people, and I really feel sorry for the young employees in, uh, uh, in the restaurant or the Canadian Tire or what have you, because, you know, you're allowed to have a, a rule, no shirt, no shoes, no service, no mask, get out. You know, it's a, it's a public health order. Okay, so you anticipated my question on that, and that is, what is what does the law say on this? So, like, for example, we've got a mandatory mask order in the province. You must mask up in these indoor public spaces. So, does therefore are the stores therefore within their rights to refuse service to someone who doesn't want to put on a mask? 
Absolutely. Refuse service yeah. and get out. They're violating the health order. Yeah. Uh, that is the obligation I think the store has. If the person, uh, you know, continues to stay in the store or resist or say no and, or not put on a mask, the next step is to phone the police. Okay. What about some of the people who claim to have a medical exemption? And I remember listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry at the start of this saying, like, try not to judge people too harshly because maybe some people may have a legitimate medical reason that they can't wear a mask or they've got asthma or some other some other sort of respiratory issue. Do they have, I mean, is there any kind of exemption or rule that allows people to go into a store without a mask on for medical reasons? Well, I would stay for, say from the start, I have yet to see a video of somebody who's you know, presenting a letter showing that they have a medical exemption, yeah. something from their doctor. Like, uh, there, there hasn't been one, right? <laughs> I haven't seen one viral video of somebody pulling out their medical exemption. I've had seen viral videos of people confronting the poor uh, clerk at, a, at the grocery store where they're videoing it saying, I have a medical exemption. The, I mean, I, I, so far, I think the people who actually have a medical exemption probably behave much more reasonably and explain it. Of course, if you have a legitimate medical exemption, you've gone to your doctor, you've got a letter from your doctor explaining there's a reason uh, that you can't wear a mask, and that's going to be few and far between, right? Yeah. It's going to be very few people who have that. Uh, then uh, there may be a circumstance, but, I mean, these masks fit loosely. You can get uh, the medical masks are, are not pushing right on you to your face and you can still breathe. There's almost nobody who's going to have a medical exemption, and that's the reason we don't see any videos of people you know, in difficulty with a medical exemption. Right. Speaking of Paul Doroshenko, he's a lawyer with Acumen Law. What about uh, the enforcement of this stuff, Paul? I mean, it sounds like, it seems like in some of the videos we've seen that, unfortunately, this is being left to, to the staff. And invariably, they seem to be just young people working in, in you know, minimum wage retail jobs, and, and they got to deal with this kind of stuff. But it's tough for the cops, too. I mean, the cops can't be everywhere to police this stuff. But your thoughts? Well, the police are not enthusiastic about taking people down because they're not wearing a mask. You know, ideally, yeah. you want the person to comply with the law and get out. Uh, at the store level, uh, they, they probably shouldn't be trying to take the person out. They probably shouldn't be trying to remove them. They should just be phoning the police. Every Canadian tire store has at least one and usually two security people working, and they're usually sort of undercover looking for shoplifters. Uh, they are in this video, you know, confronting along with management and other staff, uh, this individual who wouldn't leave. Who was in there? It looks like he was looking for a fight. Uh, and uh, probably the safest thing for them would have been to just continue to follow him and ask him to leave while they phone the police immediately. And the police will respond. You know, they, they, they're, it's their job to enforce the public health order. The police will come, and you, you've, you're in a circumstance like this, and you've got somebody in your store, and uh, you can pretty much assume that they are going to uh, uh, violently resist leaving. Uh, there's nothing wrong with calling 911 in those circumstances. Okay, what about the, the penalty here? The fine that is typically handed out for violating the mask mandate in British Columbia is $230. What do you think of that penalty as a deterrent? You know, some people are just deterred by the fact that the law exists and they comply yeah. with the law. Some people are not deterred, and it could be a $2,000 fine or a $250 fine, and they're not deterred. The thing that we see with, uh, with sort of like issuing traffic tickets is people are so humiliated when they're pulled over sitting in their car, slouched down in their seat because they ran a red light or were speeding, that they are often deterred by virtue of the fact that they get the ticket. In these circumstances, I don't think the $250 is going to deter many of these people. If they're repeat offenders, then, you know, the next step is to arrest them, detain them, keep them in custody, bring them in front of a judge, and put them on bail conditions. Okay. It sounds like a, a lot of these...
these tickets that have been handed out under the public health orders in British Columbia, it sounds like a lot of them are not being paid. I mean, it's just a small percentage of these fines that have actually been paid. And uh, many people uh, uh, saying that they're going to d- dispute the uh, dispute the tickets in, in court. Do you think people would have any kind of leg to stand on in court if they fight these tickets? There's filing the ticket in dispute, right? Uh, or there's letting it go beyond 30 days, at which point it becomes a deemed conviction. Uh, doesn't mean that they paid it, just means it's a deemed conviction. It doesn't show up on your driving record, right? We have got a sort of a, a provincial record of offenses that you've committed, but it doesn't have a huge impact in your life. Uh, but of course, ICBC ultimately is going to collect from those people who don't pay if they don't dispute it. If they do dispute it and it's set down for a trial, uh, it's going to depend on the evidence. And the police officers are going to come and testify. And police officers usually take really good notes about what took place uh, and uh, are professional witnesses there to testify about what took place. Uh, there may be some people who decide that they you know, want to try and run some uh, charter uh, argument of some sort, uh, and right. we'll see whether or not any of those have any merit. I don't think that the charter arguments are going to get very far. Uh, there may be circumstances where the facts in the case can lead to an acquittal, but you know, if you're if you're openly defying the law for the sake of of uh, essentially a political protest, I don't think you've got a, a particularly good argument. Paul, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. If you're a student, a parent, or a teacher, how much confidence do you have in the system that's in place to inform you about a possible COVID-19 exposure in school? One concerned parent says health officials are failing our kids. Our show contributor, John Jang, spoke with that parent. John. Good morning, Mike. Here's a troubling stat for you and our listeners today. More than 40% of Coquitlam area schools have had a COVID-19 exposure in recent days. That includes Castle Park Elementary as part of School District 43 in Port Coquitlam, which is just one of 30 different schools in that district now flagged for exposures. One parent is now saying that health officials are failing their children. She is Nicole Collins, mother of a student attending Castle Park Elementary, who joins us now. Nicole, what information did you receive when Castle Park Elementary parents like yourself were sent two different COVID-19 notifications from Fraser Health? The first notice we received on Wednesday advised parents that, quote, someone with COVID-19 was at your school on February 12th. It's clearly written in the singular, leading the reasonable person to conclude that there was one person at our school. The next day, we received another early notice letter informing the parents again, someone with COVID-19 was at your school on February 11th. So both letters expressly written in the singular, um, leading myself to conclude that we have had a single person with COVID-19 in our school on the 11th and again on the 12th. As mentioned, Port Coquitlam falls under the Fraser Health Authority, and from my understanding, you and other parents did actually reach out to Fraser Health for clarification on these notifications. What were you told when you attempted to get in touch with officials at Fraser Health? Sure. Um, so I questioned um, the, the accuracy of the early notification letter once we received a notice to self-isolate in our classroom. Um, the notice to self-isolate came uh, dinner time on Friday night and informed us that our child was, quote, likely exposed to a person with COVID, again written in the singular. Now, luckily, um, the parents in my daughter's class 
have been exceptionally transparent and wanted our class to know that we have two cases in our class of COVID-19. Um, so I questioned how this notice to self-isolate letter references back to the early notification letter and started questioning how many kids were actually in our school with COVID-19 because the communication from Fraser Health clearly and expressly indicates to me that there was one person on the 11th and one person on the 12th. And I have parents coming forward in my class indicating that we, in fact, have two children in our class. Those children didn't find out until after those early notice letters were issued. So you can logically deduce that there's more than the two. I reached out to Fraser Health myself. I was advised uh, that, yes, the letters are written in the singular. They're issued per day, regardless of whether or not there was more than one person in the school with COVID. When I asked why that was the case, I was told that parents would, quote, find it too confusing if they issued multiple letters. So if I'm not mistaken, they're making the assumption that receiving multiple letters would be more confusing than what they ended up doing, which you could interpret as downplaying the situation by reducing the number of letters to just the two you eventually ended up receiving. Time and time again, I have spoken with parents like yourself who have asked for transparency and honesty in this process, and here we are needing those same things even today. Nicole, how much confidence do you have in the current system that is in place for notifying families? I have zero confidence in the current system. I'll actually go as far as to say the current system is resulting in gross negligence on the part of Fraser Health. They're breaching their duty of care to families in this province. I know that they have recently announced a new streamlined notification system. However, in my opinion, it's nothing more than a PR spin. They've not committed to any timeframes as to when they're going to deliver this information to parents and teachers. There's zero transparency in their contact tracing efforts. They're not committing to provide accurate numbers as the letter still, at least on its face, appears to be written in the singular. Um, one of the allegedly improved letters is a notice to monitor. Uh, my question to Fraser Health is, how is this any different than what you are already telling us to do? Every morning, we are to conduct a health check of our children. A notice to monitor is merely repeating what you're already telling us. You're not notifying us of anything with this new letter. And ultimately, do you feel safe sending your child back to school, back to Castle Park Elementary, once you're allowed to do so? No, absolutely not. My child will be deprived of her education until drastic and wholesale improvements are made so that parents can have confidence that Fraser Health is accurately reporting the number of actual COVID cases in our school and providing that information in a timely fashion to enable parents to make the decision that's right for them. I can appreciate we all have different risk tolerance levels. Let us make that decision. Give us the facts. That's your job. It's impossible to try and make an informed decision if you aren't informed. So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, at least to me, and I'm sure to many parents that are listening right now. If Jennifer Whiteside, the education minister, and Dr. Bonnie Henry were listening to this conversation right now, and I hope they are, what is the one thing that you would want to say to them today? Quite simply, you're failing our children. The system you have in place nearly a year into the pandemic is grossly flawed. There are huge delays. There is complete inaccuracy in notification and isolation letters. 
This is not unique to my child's school. We're actually incredibly lucky that this is the first time we're experiencing this here. I have heard horror stories. If you want to be the entity controlling the information, then you need to be able to deliver. We expect accurate reporting in our schools. We expect timely communication. We expect you to treat us like competent adults and allow us to decide what is safe for our families. Quite simply, you get a failing grade. She is Nicole Collins, mother of a student at Castle Park Elementary in Port Coquitlam, and just one of many concerned parents losing faith in the system. Leaving this contributor to wonder if the system isn't working for students, parents, and families, then what's the point? Back to you, Mike. All right. Thank you for that, John. Powerful interview there. John joins me now. Hey, John, did Fraser Health have anything to say about this? Yeah, I did reach out to Fraser Health uh, earlier this morning to see if they would want to comment using some of the quotes shared by Nicole. And uh, so far, as of the airing of this interview, Mike, no response yet. So uh, obviously, you know, they've been in communication with not just her, but other parents of that school. And uh, apparently their response is good enough for now. Okay, good stuff, John. Thank you for that. That's John Jang. He's a contributor here on the show, and I know he'll have more coverage on this later on the Jill Bennett Show, so make sure you stick around for that. Today is Pink Shirt Day, and we're big supporters of Pink Shirt Day here at CKNW. The theme of Pink Shirt Day this year, lift each other up and support anti-bullying initiatives. We'll tell you more after this. Stick around.